Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. I'm not sure what time it is, but I'm so glad you made it here today. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and stare at him for like 10 minutes. And then, I'm totally kidding, go ahead and look at your neighbor and give him a high five right now. Let them know that you're excited that they made it. So, uh, you guys excited to be in church? Phil and Lorraine, it's so good to so good to see you. I love you guys so much, and uh, God is so good, and God is so faithful. So, so good to see your face, and uh, I'm, I'm just excited uh, to be a part of the miracle in Lorraine's body and as a church. Uh, we, we can celebrate the fact that God's still on his throne. Amen? Well, I'm, I'm glad you uh, made it here today. If you could turn into your Bibles, if you brought your Bible to Genesis 32. Uh, I, I say this every Sunday, but I feel like I have like 10 hours of content that I'm going to try to put it into, like can compress it or condense it into like 30 minutes. Do you think I can do that this morning? 30 minutes? No, we, got a lot of, we got a lot of doubters in this place. Uh, I, I think I can. I'm going to try to take 30, 35 minutes to share God's word with you. But before I get to Genesis 32, if you don't know, I have twin boys, Quincy and Wesley. And uh, I, I just love the dynamic. They're, they're strong. They're all boys. And uh, we're, just in one of the, we're in that wonderful season where they're responding to Jesus. If you're a parent, can I get an amen? And so yesterday, my son Wesley came downstairs and told my wife that uh, he built, he constructed a prayer closet. And uh, so he, he informed us that he's going to be praying for the town every single morning and every single night in his prayer closet. The problem, he took all my blankets and put it in this prayer closet, my closet. So I had to, like, I had to like tear it down. So before we get home, I'm going to have to, like, put it back together. But it's exciting to see um, our boys. Thank you for your prayers. You've known it's, it's been a rough season. But uh, the boys are responding well. In fact, Wesley, he, uh, a couple nights ago, he, he informed me that Jesus is the strongest person in the town. He made that very clear. He's like, Dad, do you know that Jesus is the strongest in the town? I'm like, yeah, I, I believe that. And then he goes, you know, the second strongest person in the town is? I'm fully expecting that he's going to tell me, say me. Um, he goes, Dad, the second strongest person in the world is Papa. <laughs> My dad, Pastor Ken. Why are you clapping at that? He's like, he's bigger than you. He's stronger. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I get to, and I, I, I let Wesley know, uh, son, I could take your papa anytime, any day. Let's go out in the lobby. You guys want to see it? That, take out my six-foot-five father. That's easy. I've been working out. And, uh, but then he informed me, dad, but you're the third strongest, greatest person in the town. I'm like, totally, that's totally great. But we're going to be talking about twins today. Um, we're talking about an estranged relation, relationship. Many of you are familiar with the story that we find in Genesis 32. It's a story about Jacob and Esau. And uh, Genesis 32 is probably the, the strangest story in, in the Old Testament. It's bizarre. Before I get into that, I just kind of want to provide a setting uh, before we read this, this story. The, the setting... Well, I'll, I'll give you first a 10,000-foot uh, level perspective to this story. Really, the story of Genesis 32 that, that I'm going to flesh out here in the next uh, five minutes is all about how God puts the world back to rights. 
It's all about God. How many of you want God's justice? So this is about God's justice being fleshed out. This is what the story is about. God's justice, we'll say in miniature or microcosm. And so we, we kind of we get a sense of, uh, as, again, as we go into this, this very bizarre story of how God puts this world back to rights, makes, makes all things new. We sung that song, I think, today. Uh, we sung it. We celebrated it. Uh, some of you may, might have danced to it, did the Pentecostal two-step or the Hillsong hop to it. But God makes all things new. Can I get an amen? So God makes all things new. And so we're going to try to flesh out, okay, what does God's justice look, look, look like in this world? So that's what Genesis 32 is all about. But before we get into that, the setting uh, it goes back 20 years. Uh, we find in Genesis 25 that Esau, everyone say Esau. Esau, he's, uh, he's, he's a man who lives for the moment. So Esau is like the ancient world's version of hedonism. So he doesn't think much about his future, right? He's not thinking about it, treats his future with contempt. He's really a, a, a man who just kind of thinks about himself, thinks about immediacy. Then we have Jacob. We have this really interesting story uh, about Jacob. Jacob is, uh, his name actually means heel grabber. It's, it's, it's ambiguous. The scholars for 2,000 years have struggled with what does heel grabber mean. Probably the best way to describe heel grabber is uh, people user. So Jacob is like the ancient, ancient world's version of a con man. He's a trickster. Uh, he uses people. People are like a social utility, right? He uses people for his own sake, and so he tricks people. Uh, his relationship with people is like quid pro quo. It's like, okay, I, I'm only going to enter into a contract with you because he's a wheeler and dealer. Anyone know anybody like that? Point to yourself, right? We all have that inside of us. Uh, but he, he will only enter into a contract if... Uh, people give him what he wants. He's that kind of a person. So we have this interesting story in Genesis 25 where uh, Esau, he's, he's a hunter. How many hunters do we have here today? Like me. Okay, there's five hunters, including myself. That's six. So if you love to go hunting, uh, he, he went out for a couple days. He comes back. Again, many of you are familiar with this story. And he's exhausted. Like he woke up at 3.30 in the morning, went out into the cold and uh, hunted for duck. I mean, who, who does that? Who wakes up in the morning at 3 and sits in water for hours waiting to see one duck to shoot it? It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. But this is Esau, right? So Esau comes back. He's exhausted. He's tired. Jacob, everyone say Jacob. Remember, he's a, he's a people user. He sees his opportunity. And so it says, the text reads, that he cooks up a meal. Uh, the word cook, it's a, it's a word play. In the Hebrew, it sounds like hunter. So Jacob is, in fact, and the, the author of Hebrews once is intimating this, that Jacob is not just cooking a meal. He's on the hunt. He's now, like, in, on, a, on an animal level, um, using his brother's weakness, exploiting his brother's weakness for his own his own gain. So Esau comes in, he's hungry, he cooks up some stew. How many of you like soup? Like Campbell's soup? No one likes Campbell's soup. How many of you like uh, chicken noodle soup? Okay, clam chowder, New England clam chowder, right? Tomato soup, come on, everyone has to love tomato soup, right? On a, on a, on a rainy day, tomato soup with some grilled cheese, right? Can I get an amen? Wow, you guys just came alive on that one. Lord have mercy. So he's cooking, he's cooking, but this is, this, he's not just cooking, he's hunting, right? He's a hunter. He's a people user. And so Esau comes in, sees the soup, smells the soup, and says to Jacob, Jacob, hey, I'm starved. Can you give me some soup? And Jacob says, I will only give you the soup if you give me your inheritance, your birthright. 
So Esau, he capitulates. He says, yes, you can have it. It says that Esau despised Jacob from that moment on. Then you fast forward a couple chapters to Genesis 27. Jacob does it to Esau again. Isaac, his father, is blind. And uh, Jacob pretends to be uh, Esau. Esau goes out on a hunt. He's going to bring food back to his father. Uh, Jacob finds out. He goes in, pretends to be his brother. And Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. Then Esau in that moment because he's a little bit psychopathic, tells himself, makes a vow that he's going to kill his brother. So Jacob finds out, and uh, he runs away uh, for 20 years now. They haven't seen each other. Then we come to Genesis 32, and uh, Jacob gets wind that he actually sent a messenger, and messengers came back and said, uh, again, this is 20 years that have passed uh, Jacob, excuse me, I'll just make this very clear, try to make this clear. Jacob is now going back to Canaan, to his homeland, and uh, he gets wind that Esau, who wants to kill him, is coming his way with 400 men. How many of you like family reunions? Right? You guys are alive this morning, right? Family reunions. Like, I like family reunions. Reunions. I like Thanksgiving. How many of you like Thanksgiving? Like, I love, I love it when we make dressing and stuffing in Turkey and we watch the Dallas Cowboys lose. That's just what happens. Uh, you get out your stretchy pants. How many of you love stretchy pants, right? You take a nap. Usually, you know, my, my family reunions are safe. Like, we don't scream, we don't shout, we don't kill each other, right? So this is, yeah, it's a family reunion, but it's more than a family reunion. Um, uh, Jacob realizes that Esau is on his way uh, to to exact his revenge, to kill him. So this is where we, we land, Genesis 32, 22. And I'm going to begin reading. It says, the same night, so Jacob gets wind that Esau, his bro, is coming to exact his uh, vengeance or his revenge. And the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Can you say Jabbok? This is onomatopoeia. Uh, onomatopoeia is when you name something based on how it sounds. Jabbok is a stream by a waterfall. And when, whenever you heard the waterfall, it sounded like Jabbok, Jabbok, Jabbok. None of you actually care at all. That just, you know, let's just move on. I liked it. Okay. Uh, verse 23, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I, it's just a bizarre story. It's strange, right? It's, it's shrouded in, in, in mystery. Who is this man, right? If, if one of you came up to me and said, hey, Chris, I just had a weird experience last night. Um, can you pray with me? Actually, it was a, it was a, it was a God encounter. And I, I ask, okay, how did you encounter God? And you say, well, I was, it was about midnight. I went in my backyard, and I was throwing my trash away. And then some stranger came and said, do you want to wrestle? You're like, promise? Did you bring your singlet? You're like, yes, I have my singlet right here. Let's, let's wrestle. And you tell me that you wrestled all night with a stranger, and then you have, you have the audacity to tell me that it's God? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably, I'd ask you questions. Are you hallucinating, right? Are you taking something? As a good pastor, I would try to walk you through back to getting your mind right. So, the story is strange, but, but there's a ring of authenticity to it because there's not a lot of detail, and it's hard to put into words. I'm sure Jacob struggled 
to put this story into words with his children. His children struggled with putting into words this encounter that Jacob had with God to their children. Um, And I think that's true about our encounters with Jesus. Like, God moves us. Have you ever been moved by God before? And you tried to tell somebody, and it's frustrating because you just can't put it into words? Well, the reason why that is is because God's so good. Words cannot capture the radical goodness of God. And that's what I love about following Jesus. So we continue, verse 25. So they're, they're wrestling all night long. Again, it's bizarre. Um, it's shrouded in mystery. It says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint. So his hip is dislocated as he wrestled with him. It's fascinating. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. Here we have evokes new creation. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And when he said to him, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Let me just say this before I continue. Uh, The wrestling Maybe three hours into this wrestling match, Jacob has his singlet on, right? Um, He's exhausted at this point. And uh, the stranger, out of the blue, dislocates his hip. I think it's in that moment that Jacob realized that this was no man, that this was God, that he could have done this a long time before. And I think in this moment, here we have this, um, I think, powerful illustration of what God does in our own life. I don't think this, and I think Jacob had a a revelation that the stranger was God in this moment, but I don't think Jacob was overwhelmed with like, oh man, you don't love me, God, because you dislocated my hip. Because we know for the rest of Jacob's life, he's going to be limping. Jacob realizes that, that this isn't just a minor dislocation of hip. This is something profound. So, I I struggled with this text growing up as I would read this, and I'm like, okay, God, if that's you, if you're the stranger wrestling with Jacob, why would you you dislocate his hip? It just feels arbitrary, right? I thought you were the God of love. How many of you know that Jesus is the God of love? We believe that. Every morning, God's mercy is new. God loves you like you can't even imagine. When you were in sin, Christ died for you. So love, unlimited love, is what gives shape to God's relationship with creation, with you and I. So what's going on here? Why would God dislocate his hip? Well, I think the reason why God dislocates his hip is because God is actually dislocating that power inside of Jacob, that power that was shaped by people using. That thing within Jacob that that caused him or gave shape to this idea that he was really in charge, that he was the most important person, that he could just use people however he wanted to use them. He could use people for his own sake. He really didn't care about people. People were just kind of a utility. God dislocates that in him. I think it's out of love that God dislocates that. Jacob, as I mentioned before, he limps the rest of his life. But here's the good news. Now, because the power... The power of, this, of the self in Jacob has been dislocated. Jacob can now love. 
I'm going to be talking about today giving up hardness of heart. I'm going to talk about giving up sweeping, like, judgments that we make about people. I want to talk about how our, hard, our heart gets hard as we just collude with um, this people using power. In this wrestling, in this struggle with God, Jacob is broken. He limps for the rest of his life, but he can love, and he now sees people as God sees people. He can forgive. He now has a fresh, everyone say fresh. I love that word. Come on, say it, fresh. God gives Jacob a fresh capacity to forgive and to bless. In fact, because of this radical dislocation of his hip, Jacob is now, for the rest of his life, will only, I'll say it this way, will only become or only be a blessing-only person. A blessing-only person. So then Jacob realizes that uh, the stranger has the capacity to bless him. So he asks him, can you bless me? And then the stranger, who we know as God, says, uh, what's your name? Jacob responds, well, it's Jacob. I don't think he liked his name. I think Jacob was tired of being Jacob. I think Jacob was tired of treating the people that, the way that he treated them. I think Jacob wanted new creation. I think Jacob felt like he couldn't change himself. I think Jacob kind of gave up on life. This is who I am. I'm 45 years old. This is my character. I've tried to change myself, but nothing has ever worked. I think Jacob is a little, a little depressed when he says Jacob. And I love this, this interaction between God and Jacob. God responds to Jacob when he says, my name is Jacob. And he says, hey, your name's no longer Jacob, it's Israel. Because you've striven with me and you've prevailed. And then God announces a blessing on him. I love this. It's powerful. God comes and dislocates his hip. God does not come to crush us. Can I get an amen to that? God isn't here to obliterate you. He's not here to, and I've heard preachers like a long time ago, I haven't heard it recently, but like 20 years ago, preachers would get up and they'd say, God, just turn me into a worm, right? Make me dust, like change my, like break my will. Well, I don't think you have to pray those kind of prayers. To me, that's kind of a challenge. To me, that kind of just shows me that you think a lot of yourself. You think probably too highly of yourself. I think God will break you no matter what. You don't need to pray that. So God breaks him, doesn't obliterate his personality. He just breaks the power of the self in him. So now Jacob has a fresh capacity to love and to forgive. Now in an act of fresh creation, God renames him. You can't change yourself. Only God can change you. Only God can change your heart. Only God can revolutionize how you think. So then something startling happens. Uh, Jacob makes a remarkable statement. He calls the place of this encounter with this stranger Peniel. Peniel simply means, uh, I have seen the face of God and I lived. I've seen the face of God and I'm, I'm still alive. I think Jacob had a, had a pagan understanding of, of God. I think he just assumed if you saw the face of God, your face would melt like Indiana Jones, right? Was it the Raiders of the Lost Ark? If you're 40 and older, you, you know where I'm going, right? Jacob, man, he, he, he exclaims, I'm alive. I saw the face of God and I'm alive. I'm, I'm, I'm not annihilated, right? My DNA, everyone would say DNA. 
my DNA is intact. What did, what did Jacob see? What was the revelation that Jacob God got when he saw the face of God? Well, I think he saw the face of love. I think he saw the face of covenant faithfulness. I think he saw the face of grace. Go ahead and check this out. I think it changed Jacob forever. When you see the face of love, when you see the face of grace, when you see the face of covenant faithful love, don't get too excited on me. It changes you. It breaks you. It breaks your heart in a good way. Because when you see God's love and when you experience his grace, you're also really aware of how ugly the image of God is in you. You realize, when you really understand God's grace, you realize how twisted your heart has become. But yet grace changes everything. So at daybreak, Jacob looks up and he sees Esau, his brother. His brother has 400 men. Obviously, in this estranged relationship, Esau is a psychopath. And he's coming to exact his revenge on his brother and his family. Esau sees Jacob. And I've always, I've always been fascinated with what happened to Esau's heart. I really do think that Esau, and he sees Jacob. When he first sees Jacob at daybreak, he wants to kill him. So what changed in minutes or seconds? As Esau approaches Jacob. I think, and many rabbis have, have taught this, and I agree with the rabbis, I think when Esau saw Jacob limping toward him, his heart was broken. His heart was softened. When he saw his brother limping, when he saw his bro brother broken, his body broken, Esau sees it. His heart has changed. And what, what happens? He runs, he embraces his brother, and he weeps on his neck. See, I think, man, I think God's doing something in me, and I'm going to go up and down the stairs, but don't mind that, okay? Because right now I want to run around this room because I'm just like inside. I'm just like, this is just amazing. I, I, I realize that um, brokenness has a boomerang effect that when God breaks your heart and breaks the power of the self, people see that. And when people see that brokenness, it, it breaks the power of, of estrangement. I, I think brokenness and the softening of the heart that can only come when we wrestle with God and, we, and, and when we see the face of love, I, I think all of that um, is what defined, and let me just, because I, I got to move on, that really defines this whole interaction between Jacob and Esau. So Jacob says something remarkable in response. They're weeping. They're embracing each other. Doesn't it sound like the prodigal son story? And then Jacob in verse 10 says to Esau, he says, uh, Esau, when I saw you, it was as if I saw the face of God. 
So it was as if I saw the face of love in you. What? So Jacob sees the face of God twice. He sees the face of God the night before, and then he sees the face of God in his psychopathic brother. I'll say that again. He says something remarkable. He says he sees the face of God in his psychopathic brother. Sees the face of God in an image bearer that has been corrupted. What? Esau, his heart is broken, but his image is still distorted. And yet Jacob is able to bless his brother because he sees the face of God in him. How does he see the face of God in his brother? It's because he saw the face of love. He saw the face of grace. And God gave him his perspective about people. And what's fascinating about this story is that Jacob, from this moment on to the end of Genesis, guess what he does? He blesses everyone he meets. He blesses Pharaoh. He blesses his grandkids, Ephraim and Manasseh. He blesses his crazy sons. Jacob has this fresh capacity to bless. And blessing in the Old Testament is not like, okay, Jacob saying, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have a ton of cars, and you're going to have a ton of homes, and you're going to have a ton of stuff, and you're going to accumulate wealth. No, Jacob, when he blesses, is that word blessing is freighted with theological significance. That word bless is God's answer to the disfigurement of God's creation. In other words, blessing is a form of God's justice. And so he's going around Jacob because his heart, not, his, not just his heart, but the self in Jacob has been broken. And now he can love. He's in, in a fresh act of creation. He is a new person. He's no longer Jacob. He is Israel. And in this wrestling incident, he sees the face of God. It's not the face of anger. It's not the face of wrath. It's not the face of judgment. It is the face of grace. And because of this sequence of brokenness and renaming and seeing the face of grace, Jacob has this fresh capacity to bless everybody. Even the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, whose descendant would enslave and kill his descendants. Jacob has this bad case of blessing everyone. I, 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 this is significant. I don't know if we truly understand how significant this is. That, that God puts the world back to rights. God's justice comes to our world when he breaks our heart and renames us and shows us his love. And it's within that framework that we begin to bless and forgive and to love our town, our city, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, the racist, the psychopath, 
The presidents that don't conform to our standards of righteousness. The liberals, the conservatives, the crazy people, the person on the street, the person that's blogging about our church who hates us, the people who leave, the people who come. It's funny, when, when you've seen the face of love, it's hard to make sweeping judgments about them. When you see the face of, of love, your heart breaks. And when your heart breaks, there's a softening of your heart. So when someone offends you, when someone does wrong by you, I don't care who it is. And I, to be honest, I know maybe some of you are like pushing back. Chris, you don't know my story. I don't know your story. I just know that this is what Jesus is asking us to do. If we want to be a part of God's justice in this world. And that is we have a mandate as we see the face of love to reflect that by blessing people and releasing forgiveness to people. And when we do that, that is how. If you want revival, if you want a move of God, that's how it happens. So what does God's justice look like in the New Testament? You've heard me talk about this a lot. Jesus goes to the cross. You have the ruling elite colluding with Pilate, and they send Jesus to the cross. He's hanging there, and there are people at the foot of the cross mocking him, saying, hey, Jesus, man, if you're so powerful, why don't you um, send some legions and rescue you? Man, if I was in Jesus' shoe, if you were in Jesus' shoe, most of us would be blankety-blanking our mockers, Right? I think, man, if I was in Jesus' shoe, I would use the power of knowing everybody against the people that were sitting at the, at, at the feet of, or at the foot of the cross mocking me. I'd be saying like, John, hey, John, I know who you are, John. I know what you thought about yesterday, and I'm really offended that you thought that about me, John. Just so you know, I'm going to rise from the dead in three days, John, and just so you know, I'm going to give you what you deserve, John. Don't you hate it when people say your name like five or six times? It's so condescending. Don't do that. But what does Jesus do? This is Jesus' version of justice. He doesn't blankety-blank people. He doesn't blankety-blank those whose image has been entirely corrupted. The religious, the ruling religious elite They've colluded with the powers of death. Jesus, what he says is not, I'm going to give you what you deserve. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. This is God's vision of justice. It's not giving people what they deserve. It's forgiving them. Because God's justice, just so you know, the ends of God's justice is not punitive retribution. In other words, God's version or vision of justice is not annihilating people. You know what it is? God's vision of justice or the end of God's vision of justice is reconciliation.
it doesn't make sense to me. You have, these, you have the, the, the religious elite at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You know what Jesus is essentially saying? He's saying, I want to be your friend still. Oh my God. This is justice. Justice is not giving people what they deserve. That's childish. And, you know, I, I'm not here to critique justice movements. I, I believe in justice movements. I think we need to critique everything in a spirit of love. Um, I think God is doing some incredible things in our world, in our city. Can I get an amen to that? But if, if someone is propagating uh, a justice issue, and reconciliation is not the end, and forgiveness is not the means to that end, I have to reject it every single time. Let me just say this. Blessing and forgiving somebody does not mean you have to forget what they've done. I know it's getting really quiet on me because everyone's like, oh, I don't know if I agree with this. Chris, this is just I, forgiving. How can I forgive a racist? I know it's tough. Yes, the image in a racist is totally distorted. A person is not walking in line with the kingdom of Jesus. But blessing and forgiveness is the way, the means to reconcile, reconciling with your enemy. And forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not pretending like nothing has happened. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, you didn't do wrong by me. No, forgiveness is simply saying, yes, you've done wrong. Yes, there were some things that have erected a barrier between us, but forgiveness is refusing to allow that barrier to exist between you and your spouse or your kids or your neighbor or your, some person in your past. Forgiveness is saying, I will not let this barrier or this enmity to exist in my relationship with the person who has wronged me. Oh, my word. I don't like this message, people. Because you know what we want? Usually, we want to give people what they deserve. You hurt me. You did this to me. I can't stand you. Right? And we focus on how their image has become entirely corrupted. And it's ironic because when we do that, when we're making sweeping judgments about people, who have wronged us, we forget one thing, that the image of God in us has also been distorted. Are you perfect? I, I, I'm not trying to get too serious on you. I like joking. We're, we're the clowns. We need, some, we need to juggle fire here just to lighten the mood, right? No one in this room is perfect. No one is. And God's summoning his people to practice the art of forgiving because it's when we forgive, it softens the heart. And it's rooted out of a basic awareness that we're not perfect and that when we move into forgiveness, that's when reconciliation takes place. Let me just say this really quick story that kind of just illustrates what I'm talking about. There's a pastor who wrote this. He goes, a number of years ago, a church member came to me with a complaint I guess another member of the church. And he just quips. Pastors just love it when this happens. 
He goes, his complaint involved a disputed 500 deposit on a rental property that he owned. His side of the story was complicated, and though I could see his point, <coughs> I wasn't entirely sure he was right. But to tell the truth, I wasn't all that interested in who was right. I'm not a judge, I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I wasn't nearly as interested in justice as I was in reconciliation. I wanted these two church members to be friends and to get along. I decided it was worth $500 to me, so I told the offended church member this. What I want you to do is to forgive. I want you to forgive your sister in Christ. And I want you to let the matter go. I will personally, this is what he said, I'll personally give you the $500. I'll pay what you're owed at my own expense. You won't be out any money for my sake. I ask you, he pleads with this gentleman, I ask you to forgive your sister. The result was that he got mad at me and left the church. He wasn't interested in reconciliation. He wasn't even interested in justice. What he wanted was retribution, pure and simple. He wanted to stick it to someone he didn't like and to see that person squirm. He wanted her to be humiliated. He wanted to use me as an authority figure to lower the boom on his enemy. Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian, said this about reconciliation and the power of evil. He goes, to triumph fully. Evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when the evil deed is um, perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Basically, he's saying that evil, like compounds, it's like compound interest, it compounds on itself. And that there's also another kind of boomerang effect that when evil is done, uh, it compounds itself. And usually what happens, people respond to evil by using evil in return. And what Jesus says, the only way that we can swallow up human corruption in this world and in our lives is when we respond with goodness and forgiveness and blessing. Because the ultimate goal of the Christian story is reconciliation. I want to read a quote really quick. Martin Luther King, he wrote this 50 years ago, 60 years ago, one of his sermons. I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes, and I think it gets close to what we're talking about, what we see in Jesus. He goes, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet, you, your, meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a mortal obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you you. Wow. We shall still love you. And he continues, at the end, we will have made you our friend. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Sounds like Jacob right there. Sounds like what happened to Jacob. Man, his life is dislocated. 
the self in Jacob is dislocated. In an act of fresh creation, he's renamed. And then God shows him his face, and it's the face of grace. And Jacob, for the rest of his life, blesses and forgives. Come on. And loves and loves and loves and loves. This is our mandate as followers of Jesus. It's to wear down evil with our capacity to love. And like last week, be patient. I'm never going to preach on patience again because I had to be patient way too much last week. But it's through our patience. It's through our love. It's through our forgiveness. And it's through our blessing as we see the face of God that we wear down the power of evil and human corruption. I, I'm, I'm prophesying. If, if you like prophecy, I'm going to prophesy it today. That some of you, this year, you, you have an estranged relationship with someone. And I believe by the end of this year, I feel like, I actually didn't plan on saying this, but I feel like that the Holy Spirit wants me to say this. At the end of this year, God is going to do something, something so great in that estranged relationship. You're going to look back and you're going to see the goodness of God, the softening of heart, and you're going to see that re relationship that's been broken, reconciled by the power of Jesus. I believe that. I feel like this for some of you this year. At the end of this year, you're going to experience relationships that have been broken, reconciled. So really quick, how, how, do, we, how do we flesh out this, for, this forgiveness? How, how, do we, how do we flesh out um, the breaking of our heart? Because you can't break yourself, right? Can I get an amen to that? Please don't go home and try to manufacture your own brokenness. It gets weird. <laughs> Right, there's too many weird Christians out there, right? So don't go home and try to scream at God and say, break me. So how do you do this without getting weird? Matthew 6, 9 tells us, pray then like this. Our Father, here we have God's brand new world in microcosm. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth are coming together. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. Everyone say daily. So you ask God for provision. You start with God as your father, not just a faceless bureaucrat. You pray his kingdom come, his will be done. Then you pray for fresh daily bread. And then verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me just say this. I think Jesus intentionally placed forgiveness after daily bread. And I think what Jesus is trying to emphasize is that forgiveness or the need of forgiveness or the reality of forgiveness is woven throughout the fabric of our daily lives. Can I just say this? We, we I don't know, we give the, I'm gonna expose the lie of forgiveness. We think forgiveness is, is an occasional act that we do every now and then. Uh, we, we need forgiveness like every now and then with God and we need forgiveness with other people or we need to release forgiveness with other people every now and then. No, Jesus is saying, guys, God forgiving you and you forgiving other people, that's a daily thing. Right? Many people are thinking, okay, who, I, I got, I got, if you're not careful, you're like, I got to make up an enemy in my mind to, in, in order to forgive them. No, you might have an enemy in your mind. Some of you have gone through horrific things, and this is a word for you to practice forgiveness. I need you to go home today and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. But for some of us, we, 
You know, I don't want you to manufacture an enemy. You don't have to. Forgiveness is a daily thing. It's not an occasional thing. It happens because we're pro-social creatures. I mean, we, I, I can't tell you this week, this week I had to, in my heart, forgive quite a few people. People say the darndest things, right? People say this, people say this, people comment like this. You, you have to, you gotta make sure that you don't nurse grudges. You gotta make sure that every single day you're not making sweeping judgments about people. And the only way that you can do that, or the only way you can break the power of grudges and hard, hard, hard heartedness is when you choose to forgive. But how does God break our heart so that we can release forgiveness? The logic is pretty simple, and this is, this is where I'm done. Jesus is saying two things in verse 12, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is saying that if you don't practice the art of forgiveness, you will not find yourself at home in his kingdom. You're, you're gonna be on the outside looking in. Forgiveness is the way new creation is. How many of you love Chick-fil-A and, and Christian chicken? right? Now, how many of you love In-N-Out and their burgers, right? I love their burgers. But if you were to come from In-N-Out because you love burgers and you want to go to Chick-fil-A and you're like, well, can't you make some burgers like this? The Chick-fil-A representative would say, okay, stop it. We make chicken. That's our way. Jesus is saying something similar. Hey, the only way, actually he's saying something a little bit stronger. He's saying the only way to be human the only way to find yourself in my kingdom is you have to learn to release forgiveness. In fact, I think Jesus is saying there's only one unforgivable sin in this world, in this universe, and it's not releasing forgiveness. Why is that true? Because the logic is pretty simple, and this is where I'm going to end. Um, your capacity to forgive someone is dependent on your understanding that you've been forgiven so much. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is stressing, hey, the reason why you might have a problem with forgiving somebody is because you don't realize how distorted you are as a human. And the way God breaks the power of the self in you, when you think, you don't, let me just say this. I didn't plan on saying this. On a subconscious level, everyone in this room thinks they're the best. You think you are, me too, the most, this is, I feel like Pastor Ken, this is pastor talk here. Okay, we're, this is like a family talk here. We all on a subconscious level think we are the most important people in the universe. On a conscious level, we don't think that. And what happens is when we come to this text in verse 12, and we wrestle with it, and we wrestle with forgiveness and blessing in the story with Jacob, the first thing I think we need to do over the next seven days is we have to, and you can do this weird, but don't do it weird. You, I think we have to go to God, and we just have to say, God, please forgive me of my sin. Because we need forgiveness every single day. And when you realize that there's some ugly parts in your soul and that God still loves you in an extravagant way, that's when you have a renewed capacity to forgive those who have offended you. And when you practice forgiving those who have offended you, 
We're not forgetting what they've done. Can I get an amen to that? It's not like we're not going to speak the truth and love to powers. But when we practice this forgiveness, that is when the possibility of reconciliation emerges. We can't get to reconciliation if we don't practice forgiveness. And the way we practice forgiveness is we just come to the realization, God, man, there's a lot of things that I need forgiven for today. I'm going to keep my hand raised until I get an amen. So what I, what I want us to do is I want us to give up the sweeping judgments for seven days that we make. I want us to give up hard-heartedness. I want, I want us to open up our heart to uh, God breaking the self in us. How do we do that? We practice for seven days. Practice asking the Holy Spirit to forgive us of our sins. We're not searching for sins. This isn't weird Christian navel gazing. Oh God, I, I got a problem. I need I need you to forgive me of this, this, and this. No, I don't want you to do that. I simply want you every single day to come to Jesus and say, God, I thank you that you have forgiven me of so much. And when you say that, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about what he wants to speak to you regarding maybe something in your life that is distorted or maybe turn the image of God in you upside down. And I guarantee when that begins to happen, when you realize who you are and who God is, brokenness takes place, blessing flows out of your life, Forgiveness, though it's still always hard, forgiveness becomes a reality. And when forgiveness becomes a reality, then reconciliation becomes a possibility. And where, where there's reconciliation, that is where God's justice is. Can I get an amen, church? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com. 